Will you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord? Amen. You know, one of the hardest things that you uh, need to do when you are putting together a speech or a presentation, a talk of some kind or a sermon, is figuring out the conclusion. Uh, how do you drive home the final point, the main point of the talk, the sermon, the message? What do you say that's going to motivate people to apply the lesson or lessons? And what story or illustration should you choose that will stick with them after they leave? Today we are continuing our sermon series looking at the parables of Jesus. And today we come to a very short parable. The story, the parable of the two builders. One man builds his house on the rock. The other man builds his house on the sand. This is a story that uh, if you grew up in the church in Sunday school, you probably learned this story. You probably learned the song that goes with us. Remember how the song goes? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house on the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. Rains came down, floods go up, rains go down, floods go up. Rain goes down, floods go up, and the house on the rock stands firm. The second verse, they just substitute in the, the man with the sand. And at the end, the house goes, remember, splat or flat. Well, this is the parable. This is a very simple story. This is the parable that Jesus chooses to close a sermon it's a closing illustration of the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount. We see the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Why does Jesus choose this very simple parable, this simple story of, of two people who build houses? Why does he use this illustration to close his sermon? What's he trying to drive home? Before we look at that, let's do a quick flyby, a quick flyover of the sermon first. Looking at chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, we know from the end of chapter 4 that Jesus had been performing miracles, healing people, doing exorcisms, all sorts of things. He's been teaching, and, and the word is getting out. There's a buzz about Jesus. People are excited about Jesus. They want to see what he's about. So this crowd of people gathered from all over the countryside to see what he's going to do next. Maybe he'll do a trick. Maybe he'll do a miracle. What's he going to say? So they gather to hear him. And Jesus sees this crowd. And with this in mind, Jesus steps back and he begins, he begins to, to teach. He begins to preach. And how does he start his sermon? With a joke? No. He starts with the Beatitudes. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See what Jesus is doing here? There's this crowd of people who've gathered. They want to see Jesus. They, they want to see him do something impressive, impress us, entertain us, do something. And Jesus begins talking to this crowd by describing the traits that he is looking for in disciples. You want to be my disciple? Then be meek. Be humble. Be merciful. Be about making peace. 
stand firm when you're persecuted, and so on and so forth. Jesus begins this sermon by saying, if you want to be my disciple, this is what it looks like in the kingdom of heaven. And then he launches into this sermon. Let's stop for a second. You ever think about getting a spiritual checkup? We, we go to the doctor, hopefully periodically, occasionally, regularly, to get a physical. We go to an eye doctor or dentist to have our eyes or our teeth checked out or an audiologist to hear, get our hearing checked, so on and so forth. If we have a business, we have audits to check our financial health, make sure everything is the way it's supposed to be. What can we do for a spiritual checkup? Well, there's all sorts of things we can do, but one of the things I found is helpful is to take the Sermon on the Mount and hold it up like a mirror to my life. That's pretty humbling. It's really challenging, really convicting at times. So let's jump into it and see what the Sermon on the Mount has to say. And Jesus lays out some very challenging things about all sorts of areas of life. He begins by teaching about anger. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or his sister will be subject to judgment. Basically, that includes all of us, right? Therefore, go and be reconciled with them. He instructs us about lust. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He talks about marriage, about divorce. He talks about keeping our word or keeping our vows. He warns us about taking revenge. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him also. He tells this crowd of people to love their enemies, to give to the needy, and to do so in such a way that you don't get attention for doing it. Don't slap your name on all sorts of buildings. He says he turns to the topic of prayer next, and he gives the disciples the words of the Lord's Prayer, and like giving, he says, don't pray as a way to get attention. He teaches about money, and he warns about the perils of, of putting our trust in material things. He says, nobody can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and love the other, or they'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Nobody can serve both God and money. Jesus knows the human condition. He knows we tend to fret and worry about all sorts of things. And so he says, don't worry, because God will take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He instructs us not to judge others, but to look at ourselves first and our flaws and our sins before pointing out those in others' lives. He covers all sorts and more, all sorts of topics in his sermon. And then he comes to the end of the sermon. And at the end of chapter 7, there's a, there's a narrowing, a contrast that begins to happen, a, a call to, to make a decision. He says there's a, a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. There is no third gate. He said there is a narrow road and a broad road. There is no third road. He says there is a good tree that produces fruit and there's a bad tree. There is no third tree. There are true disciples and false ones. No third category. There's the house built on the sand and there's the house built on the rock. No third house. Jesus ends his sermon by saying there are people who do what I say, who build their lives upon what I do, and those who hear and know but don't do it. Now in the parable, the houses probably don't look all that different. It's not like the story of the three little pigs, you know, 
one's built with bricks, one with sticks, and one built with, with, uh, with straw. They, they, they probably looked alike, alike uh, on the outside. Probably nice two stories, middle class, maybe upper middle class homes. But the difference is the foundation. One built on the sand, no basement, no storm cellar, no solid foundation, the other on the rock. Both look alike. But then the storms come, and the difference, which was not obvious during the good weather and the good times, is now very apparent during difficulty, during the storms of life. Because what we have built our lives upon will be revealed during the storms of life, sooner or later. And so Jesus uses this very basic, very straightforward, profound illustration. There are those who build their lives on my teachings and my life and those who don't. And for Jesus, it's driving to this point, to this question. Will you be devoted to me as a disciple, as a follower, or will you not? Will you be a follower or just an admirer of me? This huge crowd of people, many of them, they all admired Jesus. They were all attracted to him. But not all of them chose to follow. That's the main point he's driving toward throughout his sermon. Will you be an admirer or will you move from that to being a follower? You see, admirers always hold part of themselves back from God. We see a couple of examples, interactions of Jesus with admirers in the scriptures in the New Testament. One of them is in John 3. There's a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He's a, a, you know, he's a religious leader. And we are told in the text this. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miracles if God were not with him. In other words, I'm very impressed. I respect the things you're doing and saying. Nobody could do the things you're doing. Nobody could speak like you could unless God was with them. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime. Why does he do that? He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to risk losing his status among the religious leaders. He's an admirer. I respect you. I'm impressed by you. I can agree with a lot what you say. But that's where it stops. And Jesus' response to him is this. Again, he drives to a decision. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must become my follower. You must allow my spirit to remake you. You must publicly identify with me. You're going to have to give up what you want the most. As we follow Nicodemus' story, we see later on that he actually does. At the cross when Jesus dies, all the disciples scatter except for the women. But Nicodemus is there. When Jesus dies, he publicly claims his body and places it in a tomb and he pays for it. He goes from the night into the light to become not just an admirer of Jesus, intrigued by him, but he comes to follow or a disciple. Another example, somebody who's known as a rich young man comes up to Jesus. Remember that? And, 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 and he comes up to him and, and he admires Jesus. And it says this, he ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now think about this. He's rich, it tells us. So he has status in the community. I don't know if he inherited it or he was a self-made man, but either way, he's got, he's got status. And he runs to Jesus in front of a crowd 
and he humiliates himself. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. It's an act of, of, of deference, of worship, of, of reverence. He calls Jesus good teacher. He knows that Jesus has the answer to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, go and sell all your possessions. In other words, change your lifestyle radically and your priorities. Give away everything you have to bless the poor and come follow me. And the rich, rich young ruler has a different reaction than Nicodemus. It says he turned and walked away very sad. He was ready to admire Jesus. But following him, that would interfere with his plans, his, his finances, his, his life. He had to draw the line there. Jesus always does this with people. He asks, are you going to follow me or are you simply just going to admire me? And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to offer these contrasts, narrowing the sermon to a place of response. Enter through the narrow gate, he says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through this way, but small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. What's the narrow way? Well, Jesus is referring to himself, right? I'm the way, the life, the truth. I am the way, the life, and the truth. Uh, Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, surrender to me, trust in me, devote yourself to me without reservation. Hold nothing back. What's the broad way? That's the way of the crowd, the path of least resistance, kind of drift through life, admire Jesus. I agree with that and that. Yeah, we should be good Samaritans. Yeah, we should try to forgive. Yeah, do unto others. Yeah, those, that all sounds good. But reserve your right to, to do what you want with what you have, when you want, with whom you want. And Jesus wants us to choose whether we will be an admirer or a follower. I want to give you a picture of, a, of the difference between admiration and full devotion. And um, I'm going to introduce you a word. Maybe you know this. I did not know this word till this week. Funambulist. It's kind of fun to say. Funambulist. And it's an acrobat who walks on a tightrope, a cable, at a great height. There have been many of them over the years, of course. But one stands out above the rest. About 150 years ago, he was at the peak of his game, a man named Charles Blondin. And he came to the United States from overseas, and he was fascinated, obsessed with Niagara Falls. He thought it would be really incredible to, to walk across Niagara Falls on a rope. And so he actually strung a hemp rope 1,100 feet from side to side, 160 feet above the water. And a crowd of 100,000 people showed up to watch him walk this tightrope. Can you imagine that? No net, 1,100 feet, thundering water below, 160 feet, life or death, and he crossed all the way over. Tons of people took his picture, and so he was having fun with this. So he walked across a second time. This time he stopped in the middle with a camera, turned around, and took pictures of people taking pictures of himself. He went another time. This time he took a chair with himself, and he balanced the chair on the rope. He stood on top of the chair. 
He went back a fourth time. This time he stopped in the middle and he fixed an omelet. And he lowered the omelet to the boat below so they could have breakfast. Another time he went and he took a wheelbarrow across. And the crowd goes crazy. Never seen anything like this. And then he turned to the crowd and asked them, do you believe I can do this? Of course they did. They'd seen him do it. He was making an almond. He did a wheelbarrow. He stood on a chair. Of course they believed he could do this. And he said, well, who will get into the wheelbarrow now? Nobody wants to do this. But there was a man named um, Harry Colcord. He knew Blondin. He'd worked with him. He'd seen him do this a hundred times. And so he got into the wheelbarrow and they went across inch by inch, step by step. The crowd went crazy. Everybody applauded Charles Blondin. They knew he could do what he said he, would, he could do. They'd seen him do it. But only one man trusted him. And the walk they went on together, neither one of them would ever forget. Well, Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody was impressed. Everybody was amazed by what he had done. But Jesus was not interested in just impressing people. He didn't stand up there and say, are you not entertained? Jesus said, follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple, let them deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. In other words, get into the wheelbarrow. Do you really trust me? Show me. Get into the wheelbarrow. The question again is, have you devoted yourself to following Christ? Not admiring him. Not believing in him, but trusting in him. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? This is the most momentum decision you can ever make. So I want to be clear about what it means. I want to be clear about what goes into this wheelbarrow. Our sins go in there. Our guilt, our shame, our past. And sometimes folks will say, well, yeah, I'm not perfect, but it's, it's not that bad. I'm, I'm better than most. But Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says what? He says, your sin problem is way worse than you can ever imagine. You thought thou shalt not murder him as long as you avoid homicide, that you're okay with God. He says, the truth is, human hearts are messed up. There are cauldrons of anger and vengeance and bitterness and pettiness, and it seeps out and poisons things. He said, you thought that no adultery meant as long as you avoid intercourse with somebody else's spouse, that you're okay. The truth is that our hearts are, are full of, of lust and misguided desires. And he goes on and applies the same logic to other areas. He says, you have a sin problem and you cannot clean up. You cannot get to the other side on your own. But I can take care of that. I will die on a cross. I will put your sins on my back. I will take you to the other side. I will pay your debt if you will confess your sin and repent. I will wipe the slate clean. Just put your past, your sin, your guilt in my wheelbarrow. Trust in me. It also means we put in our present and our future. Our time, it's not ours anymore. Our energy, our resources, our money, our savings, our security. Those all go to Jesus. They're not ours anymore. Our relationships, how we behave in them, our mind, our sexuality, our, our emotions, our language, our work. It all goes into Jesus. It's all given to Jesus. 
To follow him means I will do what he says. Now, we're all going to mess up. We're not going to hit it perfectly. None of us can. But that's where we can say, God, with your help, I will do the best I can. I will submit to you. I'll let you live your life through me, through your spirit. Help me to live for you. And so in the end, the point Jesus is driving towards is that there are two camps. Those who hear what I say and who build their lives upon it. Who build their lives upon me. And there are those who hear what I say and build their lives on something else. Something temporary. Something that will not last. Jesus says, there is no third option. There's a house on the rock and there's a house on the sand. There are those who are followers and those who are merely admirers. And so the question is, which will you be?